Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Shoot, Mark and Sarah talk about shoot, Mark and Sarah talk about shoot, Mark and Sarah talk about song. Oh, yes, we do talk about songs. This is episode number 123 of Mark and Sarah Talk About Songs. I am your co-host, Mark Blankenship. And sock hopping over there in the corner by the crystal bowl of punch that our mom put out is my co-host, Sarah D. Bunting. Hello, Sarah. Hello. Can't talk. Busy spiking the punch. Oh, you're a rebel. Which is a good I thing. I am a to, rebel. Which is a good way to segue into what we're talking about today. Sarah, why don't you tell us what we can expect well, uh, we were inspired by the suggestion of our listener and Patreon patron, Heather M., to consider two suggestions of hers, uh, Leader of the Pack and He's a Rebel. And I thought, why not make it a girl group three-pack with a little-known joint called Boys Gone by Lynn and the Invaders. I think we're going to listen to that clip last. And uh, at that time, I will let you in on my journey <laughs> towards towards that song, which is um, a- apparently a like n- not all that secret treasure of the Western Michigan garage band scene of the late 60s. Oh, my God. Which, yes, I was a delight to learn a bit more about. Um, but why don't we start with leader of the pack first a little bit of... Um, uh, trivia, like in our show notes, I will link to this New York Post article that says that the Shangri-Las, who sing this song, um, it was two sets of sisters from Queens, and they basically created punk, according to this article, which is interesting. Um, I will also link to the Wikipedia entry devoted entirely to the teenage tragedy song genre. These were known in the record industry as splatter platters because of how frequently it involved some tough guy named Jimmy or Donnie or whoever um, getting dumped, screeching off in the rain, and then dying. Um, Or like his car got hit on the train or on the train tracks or whatever. Um, So this was considered like a subgenre, which is sort of interesting. And you know, for more on what becomes of Jimmy, let's hear a clip from Leader of the Pack. Oh, and then um, just yes. seconds later, he dies. <laughs> that- you know, you know what's funny? I immediately thought, because she's singing to Jimmy, and I immediately wondered, like, is uh, Jimmy Loves Marianne the, like, alternate timeline companion song to this? Because, like, they're sort of the same characters as in this song, except Jimmy's alive. Um, and there is a Marianne in the Shangri-Las. Oh, I don't even know what that song is, but I'm intrigued. Jimmy Loves Mary. Uh, the Brandy, You're a Fine Girl band. Oh, Looking Glass? Yes. This is the their second lesser hit, which sounds very similar. 
um and is also kind of about like a a pairing that doesn't really work and yet does interesting it's a yeah it's a good it's a good song um looking glass jimmy loves marianne uh folks listen to both this song and the looking glass song and let me know if i'm crazy that this is like the jimmy loves marianne is like the sliding doors outcome where like marianne's dad didn't tell her to run jimmy off and then jimmy didn't die anyway the Shangri-Las had a bunch of songs that were pretty tragic, like that ended in tragedy. They had a bunch of splatter platters. Um, I like I don't I don't find this like orally all that great. Like uh, the way it's mixed and just that kind of high wine, that high girl group wine that the lead singer has is not my favorite, but you immediately know when a Shangri-La song is a Shangri-La song. And uh, as vanguards of this genre, of the splatter platter subgenre, of the um, my favorite version of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, which was in Goodfellas, like, you can't, you can't beat that. So, oh, no, excuse me. That was the Crystals. We'll talk about them later. Um, but I don't think I'd even heard this song in, like, 25 years. Oh, so yeah, I, yeah, it was it was fun to revisit it, especially in this context. I really enjoy and had kind of forgotten about the fact that this song has uh, a little play in it where at the very beginning mm-hmm. she's talking to the other members of the group and they're talking to her. And it just is it's it's delicious and enjoyable to me that they're like, well, where did you meet him? And then she starts singing. I met him at the candy store. It's just so, and they would always act this out, like on Ed Sullivan. Yes. They would just be like mouthing along with it badly, which was quite charming. Well, and there's an amazing video that I sent you of them doing some terrible lip sync of this song. And Robert Goulet is on a bike as uh, Jimmy. Oh, and it's God. very much played for laughs. But one of the things that I think is so interesting about this song is that it is not performed for laughs. And no. I really did like that article that you sent me where it was talking about this, the Shangri-Las as punk because it is true that, uh, as they state, that this is a song because it's also was very early in the 60s that this song came out. It was like, like 60, 64. Okay, not that early, but still. But this is a song that is taking teenage emotion very seriously. It's performed very seriously. And then it's adding in death and like it really is like a crazy fucking song if you think about it and uh just it's sort of hiding underneath that shiny production but there is something kind of rebellious about the the song even existing so um i really enjoyed and, listening and to ironic it. as well because this is all this is an all-girl group this is all women and the idea that these um sort of self-actualized girls are singing a in a genre that's definitely a holdover from the even more patriarchal 50s right and b about a girl whose dad's like no more with that guy and so she does it like she she breaks up and she's like well my dad said i gotta find somebody that's not you but and you know if you think about it i hadn't thought about this until right now but the underlying message of this is kids if you listen to your parents the things you love will die (laughs) 
Yeah. That's actually Your dad is the enemy of joy. Yeah, like that's actually pretty rebellious. Uh and if you're a teenage girl and you're like, yeah, I love this bad boy. And you know what? If I listen to my father, he will be destroyed. This is Romeo and Juliet in two minutes and eight and 48 and, seconds. Yeah. And the like, no good deed goes unpunished thing that it's like, you try to be a good girl and what happens? Yeah. You get, you get no D and then he dies. You get no D and then he has the big D, which is death. Yeah. Um, I will also note before we move on that this has been covered by just about every bizarre combination of acts you can imagine, including Twisted Sister. Which is just the greatest. Miss D. Um, Snyder, I, who fought for who fought against censorship on Capitol Hill. And actually has the perfect voice for this. Um, Although I, maybe they did it as a ballad, I don't know. I mean, truly, who knows? I, before we transition, I also want to say I had a good time talking to my parents about these songs because uh, I knew this episode was coming up. And obviously, my parents were there when these songs were hits. Uh, they were the exact target audience, in fact, for these songs because they were teenagers in the 60s. And my mom said that for her at the time, she always heard these songs as being about the rising consciousness of America's uh, classism, meaning people were trying to rebel against the idea that someone could be from the wrong side of the tracks or that you were supposed to, if you were raised middle class or rich, you weren't supposed to talk to people who were from the poor side of town or whatever. And that for her, and at least when she was a teenager, that was one of the things that made these songs appealing. It was like, right, our parents are wrong. People, love is love. Like this was sort of a an economic rebellion as well for people who were raised middle class and above. And I, I've never thought about it that way, but I thought that was pretty interesting too. Mm, I think that's true. Um, I didn't actually talk to my parents about these songs prior to recording, but I can tell you that Teen Angel, which is on the American Graffiti soundtrack, which we wore out as a family on car trips back in the day, my mother would always try to like fast forward through it um, because she found it uh, insipid condescending she's like they both should have been killed I'm like mom <laughs> so we would change the lyrics and um the end always ended up being teen angel eat a bee please <laughs> instead of answer me uh let us move on then um to the crystals who are a much i think a like stereotypical girl group in that they were not like self self driven. Um, this is a Specter production um, featuring the crystals Afri- in name only, but we'll get to that as well. Yeah, um, they and you know the crystal. I think this is maybe the crystals' least known. Well, except it's their biggest hit from a chart perspective. This was a number one. Really? Single. Yeah. So da do Ron Ron. <laughs> had to wait for the um, blessing of Sean Cassidy before it charted. No, no, the Do Run Run <laughs> was also a hit for the Crystals, but well, you know what? Why don't you play the clip, and I'm gonna look that up and just make sure that I've got it all. Where to? All work. right, here is the Crystals. He's a rebel. Hey! 
I had to get that uh, Fats Domino-y uh, saxophone, that, even though Fats Domino was really more of a pianist. He always had the he always had that um, the yakety sax, checkery yakety sax. This is such a funny. This is so funny to listen to, having just done our Footloose ranking episode and talking about um, "Let's Hear It for the Boy," in which case, you know, in which like we love the song, but it's like lyrically, you're not really making the case for this guy. Like, what you're basically saying is he's a trifler. Yes, but he's good in bed. Yes, like just say that it's fine. Um, and I love that. I love the sort of two stories that are happening in here the first story is the story of the actual song lyrically in which the crystals are talking about this trifler like he's a rebel but he's not that like dark brooding troublesome kind of rebel really um like he he can't really even walk correctly according to the song he just sort of shuffles around so he's no real threat and this is a very upbeat sound he doesn't die at the end um no one's parents are being like tisk tisk so this is a pretty upbeat take on the traditional like subgenre of like but you don't understand he loves me but then the shadow narrative here is that this group did have kind of an abusive daddy figure with specter yes is a and b this group caused a lot of controversy with the track he hit me but it felt like a kiss which has been covered by other bands weirdly like i first heard it as a saint etienne song or as a sample in a saint etienne song and this wasn't like banned that this song but they but radio stations like felt uncomfortable playing it um like even 50 55 years ago they're like that that's not a great message no (laughs) during top 40 drive time with the world's oldest teenager dick clark like are we really gonna so there's all of that there's all of that and then there's the fact that this was uh group of women of color so there was a like there was a control being exerted over them by a societal or like music industry parent and that they were going to be told like how to dress and how to do their hair and what to sing about and there's like a there's like a darkness like this is a very sunny song but the the shade by contrast is very cold well and the fact that the crystals don't actually sing the song do you know this whole story i don't think so the crystals are not the crystals are not the vocalists on this song they it's actually sung by the blossoms with darlene love singing the lead vocal but for a variety of shady contractual reasons that Phil Spector was, of course, behind, 
he had the Blossoms record this song while the Crystals were on tour because there was another artist who was trying to release her version of it, but he knew that this song was going to be a hit. So before she could release her version, he rushed the Blossoms into the studio to perform He's a Rebel, but then he released it as a Crystal single because the label was demanding that the Crystals have a new single. The Crystals were driving around in their car in California where they had been while the song was being recorded in New York heard the song, and then heard it attributed to them, and they were like, what the fuck is this? And because the then lead singer of the Crystals could not sing in the register that Darlene Love was singing in, because her voice was higher than Darlene Love's, the Crystals had to change their lead singer to another member of the group so that she could try to approximate Darlene Love's vocal performance, and that woman remained the lead singer of the Crystals for the rest of their tenure, and yet, never once did Darling Love apparently get paid for any of the work she did, and the song is still attributed to the Crystals, even though it's not performed by them. It's crazy. Yeah. Spectre hit you, and it did not feel like a kiss, nor did it feel like cash money. But that being I said, mean, oh. and like, no wonder, I guess now thinking about what we were talking about with our Kesha episode, no wonder there is this Spectre so to speak, that hangs over a lot of pop music about it being artificial because shit like this was happening. And it's not the artist's fault. Like, they were able to sing. They just, it's just, but all this stuff happens because they didn't have enough power. And point being, though, He's a Rebel is still a really good song that I enjoy listening to. And the vocal, the vocal stuff is really enjoyable. And so it's just one of those weird things where you're like you said, if you listen to the song just as itself, it's like, Oh, this is upbeat and fun. And then you think, if you think at all about any of the madness behind it, it's like, Oh, also it's, it's a, it's a weird uptempo document of a very dark time. And notice that nobody involved rebelled against the cover story for like years. Yeah. I mean, it really was, it was sort of a known Thing, at least as long as I've been paying attention to pop charts. But the first time that I ever saw it really detailed was in the movie 20 Feet from Stardom, where Darlene Love really talks about what went down. <laughs> Bless her heart. Um, so our final song is one that I threw in because I thought it would be fun to get into a track from uh, this album I got called Girls in the Garage. Um, I think... I was at a WFMU record fair like 20 years ago and I won some kind of random drawing where I just got to pick like a bunch of CDs and I got a like really good um, 80s like lesser new wave CD like it was like B-sides from like the Bangles and the Laws and um, that uh, song Tell That Girl to Shut Up which went on like every single mixtape I ever made after that because what a great song title and then I got Girls in the Garage and like the landscape of pop music at this time was not just this like pay for play um, plantation system um, stranglehold on the artists who were like just being toured to death and you know this is what killed Karen Carpenter kind of thing. Right. It was also still this kind of not wide open, but like there was this almost internet-y like you can, anyone can just get a foot in the door. And then what happens after that, like you could still pull an Elvis Presley and show up at whatever local record pressing concern with your 15 bucks that you scraped together like the Brady kids did for their parents. 
and like press a record and a lot of these songs on this album like uh, the chimes with a y sure had never heard of them before uh the lynn and the invaders this is really the only girl in the group is lynn the lead singer um and this was like three high school boys from one high school and then lynn went to the catholic all-girls school in their western michigan town there's they have no wikipedia page there's almost no mention of them anywhere on the internet except when lynn is like posting on a message board about you know the western michigan garage band scene in whatever 1966 so let's hear a clip of boys gone and then talk about why <laughs> why why the music scene sort of evolved away from this and why that's kind of too bad I met this boy just about six months ago. He told me he loved me, that it never made me feel low. I have to say, I love this song, and I definitely never would have heard it had you not brought it in for this episode, so I'm so glad to have heard this song. This is really a lovely song. Like, this is what's sort of wonderful about this. I don't know what what ended up becoming of uh, Lynn Nowicki and her invaders, but, um, you know, I think she didn't go on to a career in music, but... This song is a little bit derivative of the era. You got a little strawberry alarm clock in there. You got a little animals happening in there. Um, but lyrically, it's very like unmelodramatic. It doesn't try to do too much. It's like we know how to play this sound that we hear on the radio all the time. So we're going to do that. And we're going to sing about this guy. Like, I loved this boy. He's leaving. I am bummed out. Like we rhymed train and rain because that's how this works. And now (laughs) we have a single and now we're just going to go back to our lives becoming who even dental technicians and professors or whatever, whatever it is that they became. But this CD is full and some of the songs are garbage, but there's like 27 songs and they're all about two minutes long. And you have a couple of really fun ones like their take on Van Morrison's Gloria. That is Melvin. I forget which group did that, but um yeah, if you can find this CD, Girls in the Garage, I I definitely recommend it. It's it's fantastic and it really speaks to a certain like um amateur spirit of the mid sixties in, in pop music and just this idea that like any almost anyone could aspire in a very literal way to being a to being a rock star or a like a pop singer who had a single like you could physically have a physical single if you wanted to and that's what a lot of these things are and this song is kind of a hidden treasure i really like it her voice is perfect for it and i'm glad that you like it too oh yeah I and mean, it just it feels like so groovy it's like a song that would have been 
playing in the background of uh, one of James Bond's all night shagathons or something. Oh yeah, but but also suitable for a you know rated G, Bobby Soxing. Yes, event. exactly. It's it's can soundtrack any dream, involving saddle shoes and um, menstrual pads with belts. <laughs> But, you know, I, I also think it's nice to have this song in our mix today because this is, uh, it just reminds you what a robust uh, time this was for women singers in the 60s. Like, they all these songs are of a piece in one way or another, but they're, all of these songs also uh, have their own stories and their own interesting reasons to think about them and are all very pleasurable. So... I have to say, like, I think the grand total of all these songs together is like eight and a half minutes or something. If if that, it's probably less. It's probably like seven and a half minutes. But what a great seven and a half minutes it is. Yeah, it really is. And it really brings you uh, in the in terms of the sound right back to that sort of um, liminal post Kennedy assassination time where everything was about to change and not necessarily in a good way, but everything was everything was sort of in front of us. Well, it's also a nice reminder that the spirit of rebellion can be encapsulated in music in different ways. These songs are all very bright, polished songs, but in one way or another, as we've been talking about, they all represent some kind of rebellion. I mean, even the fact that Lynn and her friends just went down and cut a record, like that's pretty cool. And that's, that demonstrates a certain amount of autonomy that perhaps one doesn't associate with the fifties. Uh, and it, it just shows that, like, well, unless you're talking about the beats or let me not get too far up my own butt with this. But it's just like <laughs> it's nice to remember that rebellion from this period can have a lot of different looks, a lot of different sounds, a lot of different iterations, that there's always more than one way to buck the system if you need to. Um, but we encourage you to not buck the system of downloading music legally and uh, paying to listen to songs that you like because artists have worked hard. Uh, don't Darlene love the new music that you love. Oh, pay for it. Well said. One, two, three, four. One, two, three. Mark and Sarah Talk About Songs is hosted by Mark Blankenship and Sarah D. Bunting and edited by Sarah D. Bunting. That's me. Need to talk to Mark and Sarah about song requests, ads, or birthday readings? Email us at talkaboutsongs at gmail.com, tweet us at talksongs, or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast. To become a supporter and producer of the podcast, visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash mastass. And as always, thank you for listening. Talk about shoot, watch, and Sarah talk about songs.
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.